You can take a seat. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you give us wisdom now as we come to your word. Um, Wisdom not just to understand it, uh, but conviction to live in light of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, We'll be in verses 10 to 16. So about 500 years ago, actually 500 years ago, specifically on October, uh, there was an Augustinian monk who took a piece of paper with a list of 95 of his problems with the Catholic Church, and he pasted it to the door of a church in Wittenberg. And this action and his concerns and complaints sparked what would be called the Protestant Reformation. That monk's name was Martin Luther. And for most people who are Protestants, we've never read Luther's 95 thesis, his 95 complaints against the Catholic Church. Uh, Even the people who would go a step further and call themselves Reformed have probably never read the 95 thesis. Can I just tell you, don't call yourself that if you haven't read them, one. Uh, But two, regardless of where you land on that spectrum of Reformed or not, it's worth reading Luther's theses. What you'll notice as you read them is that some of them are very, very context-bound. Some of it is just going to sound like gibberish if you aren't keenly aware of all the ins and outs of the way that the Roman Catholic Church was working 500 years ago. But then there's certain lines that, that Luther delivers that just kind of find themselves at home at any period in Christian history that sort of echo throughout the halls of the church in any age. And I think one such line is the first of Luther's 95 Thesis. He says this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. I think that's true no matter what your denomination or what period in the history of the church in which you live. And I think that if you grew up in the church and are uh, a good Orthodox evangelical, you would agree with that. But very often, we don't live in such a way as to convey the fact that we think that that's true. Because if many of us are honest, when we talk about repentance, it is for us the doorway into the Christian life. Repentance is for people who aren't Christians. They repent, they believe the gospel, and they move on to deeper waters. Repentance is the gate through which we pass on to something more. But when you look at what the Bible says about repentance and the way that it defines it, and especially the way the New Testament frames it, I don't think that understanding of repentance makes a lot of sense. Uh, The word repentance literally means to change one's mind. And biblically speaking, this idea of repentance always comes in the sense of changing one's mind and turning away from sin. So so Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great British preacher, can define what the Bible says about repentance in this way. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind, a very deep deep and practical character, uh, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. And so there's a sense in which when the Bible talks about repentance, it is not simply the gate into the Christian life. It is the pathway upon which the Christian walks all the way into eternity. Luther is right on the money 
Repentance is not a one-time thing. It is the perpetual practice of a Christian. We are always in the business of turning from sin and turning towards Christ and seeing him with greater clarity and greater focus. But if we're going to commit our lives to this, this idea of constantly repenting, it's kind of important that we understand what it is and what it looks like. Uh, There are certain things in life that can't really be defined uh, but you, you can sort of just pick up on it when you see it. Uh, so there's a guy next door who has this really great illustration that's maybe a little bit vulgar, but, but he basically says, you know, I can't tell you the difference between art and pornography. I can't tell you what makes Michelangelo's David statue not the same thing as the magazine that you would buy behind the counter of a sketchy gas station on Nebraska. But I can tell that there's a difference, even if I can't put my finger on what the difference is. So there are certain things that you can recognize but maybe not define. And there's an element of repentance that is kind of deep and mysterious and and hard to lay hold of. But fortunately, repentance isn't this sort of vapid thing like grasping at smoke. The Bible kind of gives us a framework for what, what repentance looks like. It gives us the shape of repentance. It gives us sort of the boundary markers of, hey, this is what it looks like to repent of sin. This is what it looks like to turn from it and turn towards Christ. And we should pay attention to that if we're going to spend our whole lives doing it. In 2 Corinthians, we see a little bit of the shape of repentance. Uh, If you're back with us for the first time in a long time or maybe you've just forgotten, uh, Paul has been addressing this church that has gone wayward. Uh, They've rejected his authority Uh, They've begun to accept another gospel. They've started to kind of wrap their arms around false teachers And so Paul sends them this letter that we've since lost that he calls the tearful letter. And it's kind of where he swings his sledgehammer and he basically tells the Corinthians to repent. And by God's grace, they do. They receive the tearful letter and rather than saying, forget about it and kind of cutting him out permanently, they receive what he said and they turn from their sin. And as we kind of continue in the text in which we left off last week, Paul actually gives us a picture of what it looked like for the Corinthians to repent. It might kind of give us a sense of what it looks like for us to repent. So let me read our passage for us, and we'll walk through it. It's 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. Paul says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves innocent in the matter, so that although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted, Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proven true. His affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and with trembling. So Paul gives Titus this really harsh letter. And it's the epitome of a don't shoot the messenger situation. I don't know if Titus was allowed to read what the letter said or not, 
But Paul gives Titus this really severe letter calling the Corinthians to repent, and he says, go give it to them, tell me what they say. And they open the letter, and whether they read it in front of him or Titus said, I'm going to go stand outside, will you take a look at this uh, in the hopes that you don't throw it back at me? They read it, and they repent. And, and Paul says that this is sort of the gateway to their repentance, that when they receive this letter where Paul tells them that they need to turn from what they're doing, it produces a godly grief in them. They're grieved by it. And that, that seems like kind of a strange starting point for repentance, to start off with mourning. But there's a sense in which unless we can really mourn our sin, we'll never be able to repent of it. There's a sense in which unless we can begin to feel sorrow over the things we've done, we'll never walk out the process of turning away from it. Maybe you're not a Christian here tonight, and you've been connecting the dots, and, and you feel like some of your thoughts about Christianity are sort of being proven true in this moment, because I've already said that the Christian life is one of repentance, and I've just told you that true repentance starts with grief and mourning, and, and you say, aha, Christianity is just one of those systems that keeps people down in the dumps, uh, keeps people perpetually on the low, it keeps people constantly feeling like they'll never measure up. It's a repressive way of approaching the world. But this sort of grief that Paul talks about that produces repentance, it's, it's not born out of self-loathing. It's not born out of this nihilism. It's, it's not born out of this sense of self-hatred. This sort of grief, this godly grief that produces repentance, it's ultimately born out of love. And that's a very different sort of grief than the kind that comes with somebody who can't stand themselves. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Uh, a number of years ago, I would have been a sophomore in college, which it's terrifying to think how that just keeps getting longer and longer ago. Um, my, my car broke down, and it broke down in a real bad way to where I wasn't going to be able to afford to fix it. And I was working three jobs and barely paying for school. Uh, and so I found myself in the wonderful position of being dropped off on my university campus by my parents for school every morning and picked up at the end of the day, so it felt kind of like carpool. I know some of you all are there, so I feel your pain. I know exactly what it's like. And at one point, uh, my mom and dad were able to sort of work this thing out where they had a friend getting rid of a car and it needed a couple hundred dollars worth of work, and so we, we kind of finagled this car for me. And so I had this wonderful car. And by wonderful, I mean it was a car when I did not have a car. There was nothing actually wonderful about it. It was a death machine, but it drove. And so I, I start driving to campus, and pretty quickly I got, I got less than content with my circumstances. And that actually came because there was an attractive girl at church that shed, said that she would never date a guy who lived with his parents. And I said, well, I need to fix that. And so I said, I have my death mobile car, and now I need to move out. And so I started to get really bitter and cynical at, the, at like 20 years old, I couldn't afford to move out. And I started to kind of grumble and complain and, and whine about it. And, and I would kind of look, at, look for every possible opportunity to bring it up. Like we would be watching a sitcom and I would go, oh, it's funny that the college students in the sitcom can live on their own. I bet hot girls at their church would date them, but not me because I don't live on my own. So side note, women in this ministry know that the things you say cut deep uh, and can be devastating. Be careful. 
And so I, I started to kind of grumble about this, and there, there came this breaking point, and I don't remember if it was my mom or my dad, uh, but, they, but they basically said, Travis, we just got you a car. Like, why are you whining about this? And in that moment, Travis felt something akin to grief. And I didn't go look at myself in the mirror and spit on my reflection and go, I hate you, Travis. But I started to think, and I started to really grieve the fact that I'd spent weeks whining about this and complaining about it. Why? Because the way that I'd acted towards my parents didn't honor their kindness towards me. It wasn't born out of hatred of self. It was born out of love for my parents, that I genuinely loved my mom and dad, and the way that I had interacted with them for the last few weeks did not honor them in the way that they deserved to be honored, and that grieved me. Much in the same way, the grief that leads to repentance, it's not this self-loathing and hatred. It's not born out of a, a low self-esteem. It's born out of a love for God. It's born out of a love for the author of our salvation. It's born out of a fact that when we walk in sin, we say that his commandments are a burden rather than a delight. It's born out of the fact that we treat his love as a little thing that's not to be cherished and valued when we sin, and that should grieve us, not because we hate ourselves, but because we love the Lord. So the Corinthians are grieved, and Paul calls it a godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation. <coughs> and so in verse 11, he, he starts to talk about the characteristics of this repentance. He says that this godly grief produced both an earnestness and an eagerness to clear themselves. It, it produced an eagerness on the Corinthians' part to clear themselves. And this sort of grasps at something that, that I think is the hallmark of our repentance when we turn from sin. Because the reality is that simply knowing that you did, that what you did is wrong is not the same thing as repenting of it. H having an intellectual knowledge that you made a mistake is not the same thing as truly repenting. Because for the Corinthians, they know that they made a, made a mistake and their repentance is marked by an eagerness to fix it to do something about it, to step out of where they once were and step into what they know is better. Several years ago, there was a high school student who had been in my small group, uh, and he hit me up and said, hey, do you want to catch up and just see where we're at in life? And I kind of knew where he was at, so, so there wasn't a lot of actual catching up. It was mostly just him confirming for me the things that I've kind of inferred from social media. And so he kind of laid out where he was at, and he was, he was super deep into the drug scene, and he was walking in kind of this crazy direction. And I knew that that's what I was walking into, and I wasn't going to be the, the judgmental, teetotaling youth leader. So I just let him talk. And then at the end, I said, so how do you feel about all that? And he said, you know, I, I know I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I know that it's wrong. Like, I know that it's sin. I know that I should, I should turn in a different direction. I just, I just don't care, to be perfectly honest with you. Because intellectual knowledge is not the same thing as repentance. True repentance goes from grieving your sin and knowing what it is to producing in you an eagerness to clear yourself, an eagerness to do something about it. And so as you walk through this process of repentance, there should be a sense in which you grieve your sin, but not that you just sit around in the dumps and grieve it, but that there's an eagerness on your part to do something about it 
rather than simply intellectualize it. So the Corinthians are eager to clear themselves. And then Paul lists these two things. He says indignation. He says what indignation and what fear marked their repentance. So the question of indignation, this sort of sense of outrage, what does that mean in repentance? Well, for the Corinthians, it probably goes in two directions. In one sense, they're probably indignant at the figure in their church that led them astray. They're upset with the person who sort of turned their hearts against Paul. They're outraged at the fact that somebody among them would have led them towards something that was sinful. But there's probably a sense in which they're outraged at themselves. There's a sense in which they are frustrated by the fact that they have turned away from something that was good and right and true. And even this sort of indignation that, that the Corinthians are experiencing, it's ultimately born out of love. It's born out of the fact that they've turned away from their first love who is Christ and they've settled for something less than him. And they are outraged at the fact that they've been duped into settling for something less than the God who satisfies. And it should be the same when we repent. That there should be a sense in which out of love for Christ, we are indignant at the fact that we would be convinced to settle for something less than him. So the Corinthians are indignant there's a sense in which they develop a fear of God. Ultimately, I think this happens anytime we reflect on our own sin. Uh, as we start to think about how far we fall from the mark, we start to recognize how high the mark actually is. And, and really, anytime we know what we ought to do and choose not to do it. There's a sense in which the fear of God is not actively present in our lives. We may know it intellectually, but it hasn't set into the marrow of our bones. And so the Corinthians, when they repent, they're indignant at the fact that they've been turned away from Christ. But they also redevelop this healthy fear of the Lord. And believe me, it may not sound great to modern ears, but the fear of the Lord is a healthy thing. There is much value in it to, to step back and recognize that God is holy and we are dust in his sight. To be reminded again and again of the blinding perfection of the Holy One of Israel, his fearful glory, his manifold wisdom, his utter goodness. Because when we forget that, when we fail to walk in the fear of the Lord, we walk in error. And so our repentance is marked by a recovery of a healthy fear of God. That's what marks the Corinthians. Paul goes on. He says that their repentance was also marked with longing and zeal and punishment. And so there's this longing and zealousness to be made right with Paul. They want to be back on good terms with him. I don't know if you're like me, but I can't stand when I'm not on good terms with people. Like, maybe you all are the sort of people that can carry, like, a beef for 10 years over petty high school stuff. Like, I can't go 10 minutes with knowing that people don't like me. It just bothers me unceasingly. Um, and, and maybe that is or isn't healthy. Maybe there's an element of me just really wanting people's approval bound up in that. But for the Corinthians, this repentance of theirs, there's a longing to be made right with the person that they've wronged. 
who is Paul. There's a zealousness to fix what was broken, but then there's this strange word at the end that their repentance is also marked by punishment. And that's an interesting statement. Because ultimately, when Paul talks about punishment, the Corinthians had punished the man who had turned them against Paul. They'd essentially put him under church discipline. And so they had put him out of the community of believers and said, until you turn back to the true teaching and true doctrine, you're not hanging around here because you're turning people in the wrong direction. Uh, and you'll remember, if you've been with us the whole time, Paul actually in the beginning of this letter says, hey, if he's repentant, you should bring him back in. Uh, like, don't leave him out to dry. If he's actually sorry, welcome him back. Affirm your love for him. So when we repent, um, just so you know, you don't have the ability to kick somebody out of the church, right? Uh, you don't have the ability to like formerly, formally discipline somebody here in your repentance, but there's something to the way the Corinthians do this because what they essentially do in punishing the one who led them astray is they put the hatchet to the root of the problem. The fullness of their repentance is that they go to the very source of their sin and they cut it out. And I think that does have direct bearing on what it looks like for us to repent. Uh, listen, Hear me well. Your repentance is not complete unless you are willing to remove the thing that has led you astray in the first place. And let me give you an analogy that might help you think through that. So let's suppose that there's a husband who cheats on his wife with another coworker, And he walks through every step that Paul has just listed for the Corinthians. He grieves and he mourns what he did and, and he weeps with his wife over this betrayal of trust and there's an eagerness on his part to clear himself and, and regain his wife's trust and there's an indignation on his part that he, that he would turn from his wife and, and settle for this woman that he barely knows and there's this fear of the Lord that sets in and there's a longing and a zeal to make it right and at the end of all of this, he says to her, all right, so... Um, I'm gonna do my best not to cheat on you with Susie next time we're stuck together after hours alone in the work building. I don't think that anything that came before that would do much good because he has not put the ax to the root of the problem. He's gone through every single other step except for the part that removes the source of the issue. And much in the same way, when we repent, this is, this is a radical reality but when you turn from sin, you have not fully turned until you have removed that which led you to sin. And, and this might require some radical things from us. Because for some of us, what leads us to sin might be what flickers across our computer screen at one in the morning when nobody's looking. And the radical action here to laying the ax to the root of the tree might mean that you just don't have Wi-Fi in your apartment. And that's kind of weird because when your friends come over and ask for the Wi-Fi password and you have to say, I don't have Wi-Fi, you get weird looks. I know. I did it for three years. Uh, the, the root of sin might be that when you hang out with a particular circle of people, gossip is just what comes naturally. And, and laying the ax to the root might not mean cutting them off as friends, but just saying to them, hey, I would really like to be better about gossip and giving them the right to call you to conviction on it. And man, that's awkward and that's uncomfortable because when you give people permission to speak into your life in that way and then they do it, you feel twice as stupid because you've already affirmed that it's a problem and now you've given somebody else permission to remind you, hey, this is a problem, you need to fix it. 
But for the Corinthians, the repentance is sincere. They've grieved their sin. They want to clear their name. They're indignant that they've been turned away from their first love. They fear the Lord again. They're longing and zealous for reconciliation. And so they put the ax to the root of the tree and they say, I'm cutting out the root of this problem so it doesn't happen again. And that should mark us every time we repent. Now, at this point, you should be thinking this sounds impossible. If you're not thinking that, you've far overestimated your abilities. You might be able to pull this off once or twice, but not for a whole lifetime. Because this sort of repentance is not the sort of thing that we can do by our own strength. And the glory of the gospel is that Jesus does not leave us to do these things by our own strength. If you've walked through the gate of repentance into the Christian life, you've done that because the Holy Spirit gave you the strength to do it. And the same Holy Spirit that brought you to repentance in the beginning continues that work now as he convicts and he challenges and he encourages and he uplifts. You are not alone in this task. God has never meant for you to be alone in this task, but he has given you the very spirit of Jesus to carry you through it. But it's interesting the way that Paul ends this section. He says, besides our own comfort, that is the comfort he received in knowing that things were okay at Corinth, (coughs) we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proven true. His affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and with trembling. So there's a sense in which when when Corinth repents, it comforts Paul because there's this tension that that has been standing (coughs) and it's no more. But there's a sense in which when Corinth repents, It comforts Titus. (coughs) Because in some way, there's something powerful about a community of believers who are committed to confessing their sins and turning from them together. There's something encouraging about seeing the people of God walk out this life of repentance that Luther describes. In 1995, (coughs) the Southern Baptist Convention issued a public confession repenting of their sins. Um, I'll tell you, I'm a Southern Baptist by conviction, but our denomination got off to a really bad start. We, We did not put our best foot forward in the beginning. We were founded on a lot of things that were really wicked. And so in 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention made this statement regarding their views on racism, which had been integral to the establishment of this denomination. They said this, we affirm the Bible's teaching that every human life is sacred and is equal and is of equal and immeasurable worth made in God's image regardless of race or ethnicity and that with respect to salvation through Christ there is no Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. It is further resolved that we lament and repudiate historic acts of evil such as slavery, from which we continue to reap a bitter harvest. And we recognize that racism 
that the racism which yet plagues our culture today is inextricably tied to the past, we further resolve that we apologize to all African Americans for condoning and or perpetuating the individual and systematic racism in our lifetime. We genuinely repent of racism of which we have been guilty, whether consciously or unconsciously. We ask for forgiveness from our African-American brothers and sisters, acknowledging that our own healing is at stake. And we resolve further and hereby commit ourselves to eradicate racism in all its forms from Southern Baptist life and ministry. That was a long time coming. But as I, as I read this statement and I read the newspaper articles that were released around the time that the Southern Baptist Convention made this statement, the sense of joy that was produced in black brothers and sisters within the convention was overwhelming because a body of Christians gathered together <coughs> and did what we're called to do, which is repent of our sins. And this is something grand. This is, this is a national denomination repenting of generational evil. But I think that the same is true for us. Thanks, man. I just wonder, what would it look like if each of us on an individual level in this ministry was committed to a life of repentance? Not just in the grand things, but in the small things. We were constantly turning from sin and setting our eyes increasingly and more fully on Christ. What a difference it would make here in this ministry. What a difference that would make in the life of our church if we were a people who were committed to repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. And I pray that we're a ministry that produces people who walk out that life of repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so often we don't repent because we haven't taken time to think of the ways that we've sinned against you. Lord, I ask that the Spirit would convict us now of those things. I thank you that in the midst of our conviction, we don't have to wonder whether or not you hear us. The good news of the gospel is that every time we repent, the answer is always yes in Christ. And so as we come now to the table of the Lord, <coughs> give us hearts that are repentant, hearts that are not hardened by the wickedness of the world, but submit to your correction so that we always fix our eyes with greater focus on Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.